I'd say that if you have some people that are looking to start maybe a, a career in real estate or to further a career in real estate, it doesn't matter so much what you've studied. It just matters your will, your hunger, your values towards hard work, et cetera. Like if you have those things, I think you'll be able to do whatever it is you want. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Erez Cohen. How you doing, Erez? Doing well, Joe. How are you? I am doing well and looking forward to our conversation. A little bit about Erez. He is a real estate investor and author. He's taken part in over $3.5 billion. That's with a B worth of real estate deals. He's the author of the book, Real Estate Titans, based in Mexico City, Mexico. So with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, Joe, thanks. And I'm very happy to be on your show. Thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to be talking to your audience. About 14, 15 years ago, started working in real estate full-time. I've always been enamored with real estate since I was a young kid. I had two sisters who were architects. And so I was always exposed to seeing the creation of buildings and homes and neighborhoods and cities. And to me, that was just always something really wonderful. And so I always wanted to be in real estate. And I started on the financial side, so on investing. And then more recently, I moved to the development side. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I love it. It's always, it keeps you busy. And it's really a wonderful business. Well, if you've moved to the development side, you're certainly staying busy. <laughs> so educate me on what you're doing from a development standpoint, and we'll go from there. Sure. So like any other field and industry, you always try to look for a supply and demand imbalance. And so currently in Mexico and Mexico City, a very interesting segment to focus on is residential for sale, right? So Mexico City is a truly verticalized city. So you have to go up and we're currently focused on doing residential projects targeted for the middle sector in Mexico. So GDP per capita here is about a fifth of what it is in the U.S. So very different price points, but building apartments for anywhere between one hundred and fifty to $300,000. But usually financing is readily available for buyers and also for developers. So keeping busy on, on that side, also looking at some mixed-use properties. I mean, in today's world, it's really a kind of a live, work, play, sleep, everything together, right, in the same place. So we're trying to add some components, some retail, maybe a little bit of co-working office, et cetera, into these projects as well. Let's go back a little bit. What was your background before you got into real estate about 15 years ago? 
I was never 100% sure which field within real estate I wanted to be in. So I focused on business administration and pre-law. I did some summer internships in law firms and investment banks. It was all really interesting, but I, I definitely decided that I did not want to be a lawyer. So I did that. And then I, I started working uh, full-time in an investment bank. It was in the real estate group. It was a really interesting challenge for those people listening who worked in, in Wall Street and investment banking. It's a wonderful learning experience. It's not such a great lifestyle. You're working between 80 to 100 hours a week. But at the same time, it's a phenomenal learning. We can go into the discussion whether school and education really prepares you in today's world for financial and professional success. And my opinion is it, it does not. But I felt like when I was in investment banking, it really taught me a lot of important skills that I needed, right? And I also believe that if you start your career off with something really, really challenging, I think that's wonderful because life, unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, is really a big challenge. So the more arduous endeavors you go through at a younger age, I think the better that prepares you to deal with the inevitable challenges that will come up later. So I did investment banking for a while, and then I was able to jump to the investing side. So I, I worked then for a large private equity fund focused on real estate investing. And you're kind of on the sell side and banking, and then you're going to the buy side when you're in a private equity. And it's also really interesting. It also teaches you a lot of transferable skills. But I'd say that I've been asked, if you could go back to school, university, what would you study? Honestly, I think that there's a lot of different fields. And there's so many different entry points in real estate, as you know, Joe, that I do think that there's a lot of different things that one can find passion for, whether it's economics or you know, whether it's pre-law, whether it's architecture, civil engineering. And whatever you decide to study and wherever you decide to go, I think that there is always those leaps that are available. I don't see that if you study civil engineering, you can't go work on Wall Street in a quantitative job. Everything throughout my life, and I'm sure throughout your life and a lot of the people listening, we're always told that, hey, you know what, it's too hard, you can't do that leap, you can't go that way, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's important to never listen to these limiting beliefs. So we're always surrounded by people that have these limiting thoughts that tell us what to do. So I'd say that if you have some people that are looking to start maybe a, a career in real estate or to further a career in real estate, it doesn't matter so much what you've studied, it just matters your will, your hunger your values towards hard work, et cetera. Like if you have those things, I think you'll be able to do whatever it is you want. 80 to 100 hours a week working in investment banking, you said was a phenomenal learning experience. What are some specific things that you learned? First and foremost, you learn the value of hard work. And I think that that's just really important in life. I would say that in general, in investment banking or any other very tough job with these types of long hours, most importantly, what you learn is, I would say it's like the qualitative things. It's interacting with other humans, leadership, teamwork, et cetera. It's kind of like the softer things because obviously you're going to learn a lot of technical things. But I would say that in order to succeed in life, the technical skills, in my opinion, are important, but they're not that important. So if I'd have to throw out a number, maybe 30% of the things that I learned were technical skills, financial modeling side, right? Like, so you do a lot of Excel performance in real estate. We have Argus, as many of your listeners probably know. You also do a lot of presentations like pitch books, offering memorandums, etc. Sometimes you do capital raising on the equity side. So maybe IPOs, initial public offerings, and then you might be on the debt side, helping your client raise debt. 
All these things are great and you'll learn a lot about them, but you could also read a lot about them. But I'd say the better experience comes on the softer side of just you interacting with everybody else and you learning leadership skills, teamwork skills. I think that those are super important. And I'd say that's probably the biggest thing that I take away from that because it's, it's almost like being in the army. It's like if you go through an IPO, like a year and a half's work, for example, you're traveling the world trying to raise money for your clients. It's almost like you went to war. You and your colleagues, it's like you were in the trenches, staying up till 5, 6 a.m., having an hour of sleep, going back to the hotel, showering and going back. All these things are just, I think, overall, really good experiences, especially if you get them at a younger age. What are some leadership fundamentals that you believe in order for someone to be a good leader? That's such a great question. And there's so many, I think, wonderful people out there who do have probably much better responses than I do. But I'd say the first and foremost thing, in my opinion, is understanding very clearly what are your ethics and what are your values. And if you live according to your values, then you're congruent. So, for example, you might yell at somebody for doing X and then you do it yourself. I think that that's very congruent in life in any industry anywhere in the world. You see this a lot. So I do believe that you have to have your values very clear. I think that it's also just simple, basic common sense that just treat everybody else as you'd like to be treated. On Wall Street, I've seen throughout my career, a lot of people that when they're analysts, they're starting out, they have a really tough time with their bosses and their bosses' bosses. So they get treated very badly. So what they do is that they eventually, when we're senior positions, they treat their analysts in a really bad way. And I, I think that's just a really sad thing to see. So for me, it's always about treating your team very fair, very good, you know, taking care of humans. I, I think at the end of the day, you know, I mentioned this in, in the book I wrote, but I think it's something wonderful. Anybody who can read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, he has so many really good points, they're really valid points that I have seen throughout my life that are really truthfully things that if you inculcate them, if you integrate them into your life, you should be able to find a lot of success. And it's just about being a good person, being a nice person. Obviously, the important skills that come with being a leader. But I'd say in general, those two are my main recommendations. You mentioned that this career path helped condition you for the challenges that come up throughout life. What is a big challenge that has come up for you in your life? Every human on earth has challenges. And many times we think that our job, or especially if we live in the Western world, we think that our job and our professional life is the most important thing. We're just always focused on those challenges. And it's not until you get something happen to you on the personal side, whether it's a, God forbid, but a, a disease that you get, you or somebody close to you, or some other type of personal thing that might happen, some type of tragedy. So I think that that's really when everything balances out. So I'd say that I had a lot of personal things come up to me, diseases with different people close to me in my family and losing some loved ones. That, that was always definitely a bigger challenge than anything professionally. And of course, like everybody else, you have a lot of professional challenges. Depending on the economic environment, you always have things that you never think will come up that will come up. And I'd like to also just put a parenthesis to this answer and say that this book that I wrote is called Real Estate Titans. And what I did in this book is I, I went and I interviewed 11 real estate titans from around the world, people that are super, super successful professionally, personally, and so many other aspects. And I asked them this question about their challenges. And it's the craziest things that one can never imagine that will come up. It's almost like Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. 
these are the types of things that you have to be ready for. So that's why, in my opinion, going back to what I said about challenges, you have to be mentally strong to get ready for any challenge that might come up because you never know what might come up. And I know, Joe, you've probably lived through this many times in your life. You know this, but we never know. So I feel like it's super important to just be mentally strong and, and perseverant. And, and also, I'd say, sorry for the fluff here, but it sounds corny, but it's true. I'd say that try to surround yourself with people that are just optimistic in general about life because they keep you motivated, they keep you inspired. And if you yourself can do that every day, you have to work on it. You have to start your day off doing different things. But if you can be optimistic, I think in in general, it's great because you'll always need that in order to deal with those challenges that will inevitably come up. So now let's transition a little bit into the development projects that you're working on. Are they all in Mexico City? Yeah, most of them. There's one deal that we're looking at in, in South Florida, in Miami. But yeah, most of them are in Mexico City. Um, okay. And you guys know real estate is a very, very local business. Building in Miami is very different than building in LA and very different than building in New York. You have different state laws and tax issues. So in Mexico City, I tell you that probably more than in, in the US, and perhaps we can make this a more macro conversation, kind of like the developed world versus the emerging market world. So Mexico obviously being emerging market world and the U.S. being developed world. In emerging markets, it's much, much tougher to get permits and licenses. So it's a much longer process. At the same time, the positive thing about that is that as you look at the ground up development kind of value chain, you're dealing with the biggest risks up front where it's where you put less money, then I think that that's something better. So in this case, the biggest risk that you would have if you build any type of building or shopping center or whatever anywhere in Mexico is that it's going to be the permits and licensing. So if you can deal with that and, and successfully and you can get, kind of get all the dozens of different permits and licenses and feasibilities that you'll need, then after that, you'll be at a much better position. Another thing that we try to do is I asked a few years ago, I love learning from really, really successful people. One of Latin America's probably most successful developers. I asked him throughout his career, what was the most important thing that he learned from developing all these projects? And he said, learning what it's going to cost me now. Because Joe, I mean, I've been throughout my career, maybe in 50 different projects involved in them. And then I can tell you that one of the main things that when you're doing ground of development is getting the budget correct. So there's almost always, I'd say maybe 95% of the times there's cost overrun. So because of that, one of the things that we're trying to do is get GMPs in place, so guaranteed maximum prices. There's a lot of different construction contracts, and it's always important to to learn them, right? You got kind of like the open book, and you got the lump sum contracts, et cetera. We won't go into that, but what we're trying to do is kind of today, before we even build the building, know what it's going to cost us. So depending on your construction scheme, if, if you're hiring a GC, a general contractor, let's say Beck or Bobby Slendley's, I mean, there's so many out there, but whoever you decide to hire, then you just got to make sure that they're also taking the risk. It's always in any type of business and in real estate, it's no different. You always try to buy all parties to do well, right? So in this case, hey, you know what, GC, if you're going to come in with us, you're going to get all this potential upside. You also got to have potential downside. But you're going to tell me today, what is it going to cost me? And so obviously there's more detail to that. Usually there are different parts of the architecture scheme, but once you can get to CDs, the construction documents, if you can advance with those and maybe get to 60, 70% advance in your construction documents, then 
probably it makes sense for a GC to give you a GMT. So they're going to tell you what it's going to cost you today. So that's something huge that's been in, that I've seen in my career that's super important. You mentioned in emerging markets, it's harder to get permits and licenses, but those risks are up front and it's less money that you have currently in the deal. So that's a good thing. In developed markets, where's the largest risk for doing a development there? So as we look right at the kind of the supply and demand in, in emerging markets, so let's take, for example, Mexico, but you could do the same argument for Brazil or India or Russia or China population is much younger. And so because of that, you got much more millennials, you got Gen Zs, et cetera, who are purchasing whatever it is you're selling to them, whether it's an experience in a shopping center, whether it's staying in a hotel, whether it's an apartment or renting some co-working space at a WeWork or whatever it is. So because of that, usually demand is larger and usually your projections are a little more interesting. So because on the one hand, we kind of discussed how you could mitigate some of the, of the potential construction risks, but then on the, on the leasing slash sales risk or market risk, whatever you, you look at it, on emerging markets, it's usually a little more comfortable. The demand is, is usually there. You have an investment thesis based on smarts and logic. If you look at the developed world, obviously demand is lower in general terms because the population is not growing, the demographics are not as interesting, the economies are growing at a much slower pace, right? So because of that, usually the construction and market risk are bigger risks, I would say, from my experiences developing in in emerging markets, right? So an emerging market is probably going to be permits and licensing. It's dealing with the fact that there is law, but forcible law is very tough. And so because of that, you got to deal with local municipalities, with governments. There's a lot of corruption, unfortunately. So because of that, permits and licenses are an issue. But as you move, for example, to the U.S., obviously, there's always the human element um, there might be challenges with some sorts of, of corruption or favoritism, but in general terms, the U.S. is a developed economy. There's enforceable law. The courts are open for anybody. It's much easier. And so permits and licensing is a little easier, but at the same time, you've got to deal with the challenge of the market risks, as we discussed. So that's overall, that's kind of my perception. Tell us about a project that has lost money that you've worked on. There's one project that when I was in investment banking, unfortunately, I haven't had too many of those yet, but they will always come, right? But if you do enough deals, you're always going to get one or two or three or four bad deals. Hopefully, you don't get too many. But when we were in investment banking, I wasn't an investor on this deal, but basically it was kind of this resort town in Mexico. It's near Cabo. It's called La Paz for any of your listeners who've actually been there. It's a really beautiful place. And the investors, they made a bet on this town kind of taking off. And so what I've learned is that when you're developing anything in resort towns, like let's say, for example, Myrtle Beach, something that your audience can relate with. In Myrtle Beach, clearly there's more access to the town. In this specific case, there weren't direct flights. As Today, you go to Cancun or to Cabo and you got direct flights from any major city in the U.S. This town did not. The investors went in saying, okay, well, you know what? We're going to go talk to United, we're going to go talk to American Airlines, we're going to talk to these different airlines and kind of get them to change some of their routes and get some direct flights in there. Unfortunately, that never happened. And you also got to have support locally from the municipality, from the state, et cetera. And so here in Mexico, it's very tough, as we previously said, to interact with the local community, the, the local municipality, government, et cetera, to get them to support you. They really expect almost 100% of the support from the developers. And just as a parenthesis, I was recently at the Urban Land Institute Spring Meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, and that's an example of a city 
that's had phenomenal, phenomenal help from the local government and the state. I was in Nashville and it's like, wow, what's happened here? It was, it was absolutely inspirational to see what's going on down there. But, you know, unfortunately in Mexico, it's not the case. And so in this specific investment, the investors did not do well. If presented a similar opportunity in the future, what are some questions you would ask about it prior to undertaking the opportunity? First and foremost, I wouldn't be that focused on having such a great location, maybe with you know, beachfront, with a marina, getting the permits and licenses, etc. I would be really focused on, hey guys, how are we going to make sure that the demand comes? Because it's a speculative development. That's for anybody listening who hasn't developed yet. It's really important that anytime you're analyzing any type of deal, you look at the demand and you realize is it speculative demand that's not currently there, but you're going to have to fly it in or you're going to have to bring it from some other city, some other state, some other country. Usually I don't like those types of deals because obviously there's much more risk involved in them. And so in this case specifically, I would be super focused on, hey, how are we going to bring in airlift in here? Who is going to come and buy these beautiful condos on the beach. Who is going to come and stay at this beautiful, luxurious hotel? Who's going to come and park their yacht here when you're an hour away from Cabo San Lucas, which has got a much bigger marina, etc.? So I'll be very, very focused on the demand. Based on your experience as a real estate investor, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Wow, that's a really great question. I would say this might sound like a cliche, but I would say that any decision that you make that it be focused on maintaining a really good reputation. So many times in my career, I've seen really phenomenal investors, people that are truly smart, that really understand supply and demand, which that's what it's really all about in terms of your investment thesis, who have really great relationships with equity investors and with different banks, et cetera, just really great people in terms of on the investing side. But you know, they've made some very poor decisions regarding ethical standards. They decided to do things that were unethical and they got caught, so they had to pay the price and that's very unfortunate. So I'd say your reputation is everything. So every decision that you make, be focused on long term, right? Think that you're going to be whatever your age is, if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, you're going to be working till hopefully till you're 80, 90, you're going to want to stay busy. So always make a decision based on that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it, Joe. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy. Gene Corino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more. Okay, what's the best ever book you've recently read? Principles by Ray Dalio. What's the best ever deal you've done? A vertical residential deal in Mexico City. And why was that the best ever? Because we were able to mitigate almost all the risks we went in when there were already permits and licensing in, in place. You know, a really phenomenal construction company was doing the building. We were able to resell many of the units and returns were over 40% IRs. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? 
I believe that in this life, kind of what Bill Gates says is that it's your fault if you die poor, but it's not your fault if you're born poor, right? I believe very much in that. I believe that helping children is, for me, it's the most satisfying thing, whether it's children with cancer, with HIV, just any children that are impoverished, etc. So I take part in different foundations, and that to me gives me tremendous fulfillment and all around the world. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? I'm happy to connect with any of your listeners on LinkedIn. They can go and find me there. And if they really want to learn a little bit more about me and kind of the journey that I went through the last two years, they can check out the book that I recently launched. Uh, It's called Real Estate Titans. They can find it on Amazon. I went and I interviewed 11 of the most phenomenal real estate investors from around the world that I know who've invested billions or tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. And I went and I asked them many of the questions that you're asking me. And they're really just phenomenal. I learned so much from them. So there's a little bit of my stories in there as well. So please, uh, if you want to to check that out, uh, I'm I'm sure that it will be tremendous value to your reading. Absolutely. The Real Estate Titans, seven key lessons from the world's top real estate investors. That is on Amazon. And thank you so much for being on the show. Really enjoyed learning about what you're doing with the developments in Mexico City learning about the differences between developing there versus United States, and then some global, just more mindset lessons that we've talked about. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. A pleasure, Joe. Appreciate it. Take care. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy Jean Corino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more.